The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to have Brad Katsuyama. He is the founder and chairman of IEX. Uh, he's the gentleman who was immortalized in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys. And he tells us the story of what it was like really to be the guy that Lewis went to just for some background information on what high-frequency trading was, how things were getting driven about, what's what's happening, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really a fascinating, um, fascinating tale. You know, stop and think about what it's like to leave a million and a half dollar a year job uh, in order to take up something that essentially was a cause. He started doing this because there were only a handful of people in the world who knew what he knew. He figured out what was actually driving uh, markets and market structure a little kooky and basically said, I have this knowledge and I have an ethical obligation to use this knowledge for the betterment of markets and the broader economy. And, you know, lots of other people had figured out the structural issues and some of the loopholes that were out there in in the world and in the markets, and they were taking advantage of it by running algo-driven high-frequency shops and, quite bluntly, making hundreds of millions of dollars a year for themselves. But but Brad, who is as, as nice and down-to-earth a person as you would ever want to meet, in the book he's described as RBC nice. He works at Royal Bank of Canada and as any American will tell you, Canadians are just terribly nice people. They're delightful. And Brad is, you know, par for the course. He's just a real person, very, very open, very transparent, totally ethical. I couldn't imagine a better person to set up a market-based response to some of the abuses and problems that we've seen in high-frequency trading. He's absolutely... Um, just a fascinating, fascinating guy. The story he tells is just amazing, how he figured all these things out. Uh, just all around terrific. So I'm going to tell you, uh, sit back, relax, and get ready for a fascinating story. Our interview with Brad Katsuyama of IEX. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Brad Katsuyama. You may be familiar with the name if you either A, read Michael Lewis's best-selling book, Flash Boys, all about how the market structure has changed in light of high-frequency trading, or if you saw an infamous segment of 60 Minutes where actually it was Michael Lewis who said the markets were rigged and that caused all sorts of mayhem over the next couple of days and weeks Brad, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. So, little background on your history. You uh, grew up in Ontario and are a graduate of 
Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, came to New York City as an intern at the Royal Bank of Canada in 2002. Uh I was here. I came as a, a full-time employee, but I interned in Toronto. But I in moved Toronto. here. I moved, gotcha. moved here in 2002. Yes. And eventually, you became the global head of electronic sales and trading, which is uh, quite a responsible position. That's correct. So, being a kid from a relatively, I don't want to say small town, because um, uh, Ontario is in such a small region, but yeah. Waterloo certainly yeah. uh, is a relatively small town, as is Markham. Yep. What was it like coming to New York City and and landing on Wall Street? Yeah, so I mean, it was it was a bit of a culture shock. I'll be honest. Um, I remember driving through the first time through New York and looking at all of the buildings, and it seemed like every single building was as tall as the tallest building in Toronto. It was it was it was you know outside of the CN Tower that you know the downtown core of Toronto is very pretty small. Um, New York just seemed massive on every scale, uh, so it was pretty overwhelming. Uh, but you know, again, adjusted and uh, got used to it. And when you start working on Wall Street, what did you? How did you find? You know, they talk about people from Canada right. being nice. The expression about Royal Bank of Canada is they're they're RBC nice. Yeah. How was Wall Street as an adjustment? Um, you know, I think I got really lucky. You know, when I, when I worked at RBC in Toronto in Canada, you know, they they're the number one bank there. Um, and when I moved down, when I got offered the job to come to New York, RBC had just bought a bank, Dane Rauscher, and they were ranked 23rd in the United States. Uh, I jumped at it just simply because, you know, there's, there's nowhere to go but up. And I, right. I felt like, you know, it was kind of a, it was a very underdog mentality. Um, my mentor in the business was this guy, Bobby Grubert, um, who was my boss for 11 and a half years in, 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 uh, in the U.S. Uh, and he was just a great role model, just kind of kept me on the straight and narrow. I was a 23-year-old kid, and I could have gone a lot of different ways probably. And, uh, you know, I owe a lot to him to kind of keep me on the, on the right path. Uh, so so you began in the early 2000s. And let, let's go back a decade and change. What was trading like in those days? What was the execution like back then? Sure. I mean, my you know, it was funny because I went from trading in Toronto um, where the market was entirely electronic. My first job in the U.S. was I was trading listed energy stocks, which meant I was dealing with the New York Stock Exchange floor. So it was calling an order down to a floor broker, um, and I remember being informed of the three-minute rule, which meant if I give an order to the floor and I saw print hit the tape, I saw trade hit the tape, if it happened within three minutes, it might not be my trade. And that was completely mind-boggling to wow. me. Um, I said, well, why doesn't the guy just get out to the post faster? Um, you know, I was the first trader at RBC to trade both listed and over-the-counter stocks. So I was trading technology. They, they promoted me to run technology um, trading, and I, I traded NASDAQ, and I traded New York, and I could never understand why anyone would want to trade with the floor because it was so much more efficient to trade electronically over the NASDAQ terminal. Um, Careful so I was, what you wish for, in other words. Well, you know, it's funny <laughs> because it, it's always, um, you know, electronic trading has always been a more efficient way to trade than to trade through middlemen, per se. Um, I think the evolution of that technology has gotten a little bit perverse, uh, but I was always of the inclination that you know technology was was a good thing for the markets. It has been. So so now let's fast forward to around 2007. Yep. When you noticed the market was acting a little squirrely, that every time you went to buy a stock, the market would run away from you. Yeah. Just describe that early sensation of hey, something's a little funky over here. I mean, it was incredibly frustrating. Um, 2006, if I saw 100,000 shares of Intel on the offer, I'd buy, I'd buy 100,000 shares of Intel if I wanted to. In uh, 2007, I could buy 80,000. In 2008, I could buy 70,000. In 2009, I could buy 52,000. The number kept going down. 
And when I would try to buy the next level of stock, 2102, I would get a smaller percentage than I got the time before. Um, it drove me crazy. And the funny part is I would, I would call my tech team and I'd say, hey, guys, what is happening? Like, watch the screens. Look at what I'm looking at. Um, the most common answer I would get is it's a coincidence. You know, many people want to buy Intel at the same time you do. And I'd say, okay, I'll prove you wrong. I'll count to five and nothing's going to happen until I press this button. And I count to three or five or seven, whatever. Nothing would happen until I pressed the button. I'd blow the stock up. and um, Meaning the offers would just all disappear. They would run away. I would get a fraction. Most of it would disappear. Some of it would trade. And then I'd, I would be forced with two choices, right? You either wait and the stock might never come back to your price uh, or you have to chase it higher. And every time I chased, I'd got a smaller fraction and I'd be left with the same decision the next time. So um, it became incredibly frustrating. And this, I, at the time in 07, I was running all of US trading for RBC. Um, it was happening to every single person on my team. Um, so that, that kind of was, a it was obviously a very frustrating time and it was the financial crisis. So not only are we dealing with this market, that's kind of an illusion of what we thought the market was, um, the world was melting down around us. It was a, it was a pretty, uh, it was a pretty unbelievable time actually. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Today, my guest is Brad Katsuyama, made famous in the book by Michael Lewis called Flash Boys. He is the founder and CEO of IEX essentially an exchange, you know, like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. You are a full-on uh, exchange, well, correct? At this point, we're, we're called or classified an alternative trading system. Hopefully, mm -hmm. we'll be a, an official exchange by the end of this year. Okay. Oh, that'd yeah. be great. Yeah. And so you were made famous in the book, Flash Boys, because you were one of the people who had noticed that the market had gotten a little funky and weird and you mm -hmm. couldn't execute orders. Your firm authorized yeah. you to lose up to $10,000 a day <laughs> yeah. experimenting. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. Well, I think and it, once we started to learn more about the exchanges and how they were set up uh, and the things that they were selling to certain participants, high-speed high traders, we started to realize that the exchanges had a lot to do with the, the experience that we were having. Uh, in order to test these theories out, we had to set up a series of experiments interacting with different exchanges in different ways. Um, and when I brought this proposal to RBC, I think it was very fortunate that I had run risk trading before because uh, they knew I could be responsible with capital. But I said, we need data points. We're running an experiment and we can't use client orders to do it, right. which means that we're going to have to spend a bit of our own money, but I'm not. it's not going to get egregious. Here, you know, my limit is 10,000. And that, that limit might sound large, but in my prior job, we were managing millions of dollars of right. capital. So it wasn't really a lot. What's um, 10000 a day between friends, right? <laughs> well, I mean... the interesting part is we didn't actually end up losing hardly any money wow. because I would, I would, we would buy stock on the offer. It would disappear and you know, stock right. would move higher. And then I'd turn around and sell on the bid and the stock would tank again. So you're actually buying and selling at kind of the same price mm -hmm. and you get two data points for almost nothing, right? So, right. so uh, we did that. We traded hundreds of millions of shares really? testing out various theories. Yeah, absolutely. We, and it really, it, it almost ended up a wash. So the part of the book that was fascinating and it was also excerpted, trying to remember where I saw the Wolves of Wall Street. Was New York the, Times Magazine. Was, it was the yeah. Times Magazine. Was the description, you hire a guy you know who's got this fantastic telecom background and he explains how the physical distances from, from Wall Street out the Holland Tunnel, yeah. that Bats was located, the exchange Bats is located closest to the Holland Tunnel, yep. and literally you could track the cell line, I'm sorry, the fiber lines, yep. 
out the tunnel and to each of these exchanges. And that time difference is what affected execution. Yeah, we, we had a lot of theories. And uh, Ronan Ryan is the guy you're describing, who's a partner of mine at IEX. And, and Ronan Ryan, you know, kind of just by a stroke, of, another stroke of luck, uh, we ended up meeting and he, he explained a lot of the missing pieces. He turned it into physical geography. He turned it into architecture and networking and the things that he had built for high frequency trading clients at the different exchanges. And, um, you know, everyone came to the, you know, we hired a lot of people at RBC and everyone came with a little bit of information. No one knew the whole picture. And we kind of like put the jigsaw together. Speaking of which you hire, you have a guy working for you called Puzz who (laughs) won the Microsoft puzzle solving championship. That's right. It was a team event. Uh, and we hired Puzz, and his nickname is because he won that championship. Puzz and, for Puzzle. And, and now at IEX, we have three people that have won that same championship wow. in, in different years. But uh, it's it seems to be a you know it's probably a good recruiting ground for people. It's uh, we found some very bright uh, you know talented people from from that competition. So so you're not losing ten thousand a day, but no. you're experimenting. You're figuring out physically where all the exchanges were, and one of the things you discovered that when you routed orders. To specific exchanges, there were very different results. That's probably being most notable. The first one out of the Holland Tunnel, and and for people who are listening who may not be familiar with New York City, you could get out of Midtown to New Jersey, and when you literally see daylight, the Bats building is not that far from the opening of the tunnel on the Jersey side. That's right. It was physically the closest to RBC, and hence we would always arrive there first. And the interesting thing about Bats... Uh, Meaning the orders would physically arrive, order and we're talking about milliseconds between orders, mil- correct? Milliseconds, yes. Um, and actually, we we were looking at the world in milliseconds, and Ronan was looking at the world in microseconds. Uh, and it just happened that Ronan could get an order from Bats to various other exchanges um, in about 476 microseconds at the time, is what is what he draw, drew out and said, here's the, the inner exchange latency um, between these buildings. And RBC's was about four or five times greater than that, which meant that he could pick up a signal at BATS and race us. Now, he didn't know that you know we had 100,000 shares to buy, but what he would know is that the entire offering at BATS just disappeared, which gives me a very high statistical probability that this big buyer is going to try to buy stock in other exchanges. So you're out there running to cancel stock or you're running out there to buy stock to turn around and sell to me at higher prices. So so he was the guy doing the telecom side of things. Yeah, he didn't know. He, Ronan did not know a thing about trading. Nothing. Uh, which was amazing, right? Because, uh, you know, he came at this with a huge amount of knowledge, but he didn't understand the value of that knowledge. Um, and again, He does I, now. He does absolutely. You know, Ronan is probably one of the greatest assets uh, anyone could have found. I feel very lucky that I that I was the one that found. That's him. amazing. Now, yeah. when you used to send, and and when you say you arrived first or you arrived at bats first, your order electronically would arrive That's at right. bats. That message through the fiber in the ground would actually just arrive there first. Yes. So when you would route an order just to bats, you would get filled. 100%. 100%. But if we would route an order, let's say, to BATS and New York Stock Exchange concurrently, we'd get filled on BATS and we would miss it on New York. Which is amazing. Which, yeah. So the, the very first sequence of experiments was going to each exchange in isolation. And what you would find is you would always get 100% 
of what was offered if you only went to one exchange. And now they may be offered at different prices, so you're not exactly going to the best price. No, it's all it's always at the same price. It is, okay. Yeah, but if you pull up an offer in Intel, you'll see it at multiple different places. Or if you pull up an offer in Ford stock, you'll see it multiple places. But we said, okay, we'll just pick one exchange, one amount. We'd always get 100%. But as you started to add exchanges, two exchanges, three, four, five at the same time, the fill rate started to drop, but you were always getting 100% at bats. You were completely missing stock in other exchanges. So, so if if traders want to defeat high frequency trading and they only and they only routed orders to a single exchange, would they get filled that way? Well, no, because not one exchange typically can satisfy your entire order. Mm -hmm. So when I pulled up my screen and I saw 100,000 shares of Intel offered, it was typically spread across multiple exchanges, 10, right? Um if I only went to one, I'd probably get, you know, 5,000 or whatever was offered at that one. Uh, but you wanted to get what you saw. And, and the interesting part was in 2006, you could actually buy or sell what you saw on your screens. In 2007, that wasn't the case. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Brad Katsuyama. He is the founder of IEX, which is a alternative trading system and soon to be an exchange, hopefully, and the star of Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys. Lewis was looking for research on uh, an article for Vanity Fair. And how did he end up finding you? So he, he talked to a couple of people, a couple of characters in the big short. Mm -hmm. um, who just happened to be clients of mine. And um, when he asked them, you know, I'm, I'm looking to do research on high-frequency trading. Who should I talk to? They pointed him to to me. Um, a lot of people, same name a couple of times, eventually get some curious. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, you know, it's it's the most interesting part about it was really, I was, it was just about giving him background. He didn't ask a, a ton of questions uh, about what we were doing in particular at IEX. Um, but when he came to New York, he asked to drop by our office and he walked in. Um, to meet with Ronan and I, and uh, there was 12, I think 12 or 14, I can't remember how many at the time, maybe 12 or 14 people. We were in a 200 square foot office with no windows. It was, right. it was, it would, it looked, it must've looked ridiculous to him. That's how startups um, run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're in a closet. Absolutely. That's right. So we were there and uh, all of a sudden I could see the wheels turning in his head as, what are you guys doing here? And, and then, and then at that point kind of, it went to, I'm going to write an article about IEX to, Maybe I'll take these two articles and make them in a short book. And by the end, he had done a lot of research. He had talked to a lot of people and he came back and said, this is going to be explosive. Uh, and, and, uh, you <laughs> to know, say it, the least. Yeah, it was. So it was. speaking of explosive, you guys were on uh, a, an episode of 60 Minutes yep. where Michael Lewis famously said, the markets are rigged. <laughs> yeah. And that caused a huge explosion you know, the next days and weeks, it's resonated to this day. Yeah. What was the 60 Minutes experience like first? Yeah. How, tell us what, sure. what was that it like? I mean, it's it's kind of, you know, it was the first time I'd ever been on television. Um, it's kind of amazing, uh, you know, to be a part of that. And, you know, it, it was nerve wracking because we, we interviewed for hours and we knew the segment was 12 and a half minutes. So, you know, it, it could go a variety of different ways. But one, one funny thing is that um, we were the first segment of three on 60 Minutes. By the end of the hour, I had more LinkedIn requests than I had connections. Oh my god, that's <laughs> it was amazing! Kind of, it was pretty amazing. I just said to my, turned my wife and I said, "Holy cow, this is this is real, right?" That, that's astonishing. What what was the fallout over the next couple of days and weeks? I mean, I think you know, again, it's it's people were reading the book at that because the book just came out the next day, right? So it was just and did phenomenally well. It exploded. It did well, um, like there, all his books do. There there was just there was a huge amount. It was it was it was crazy. Our phone was ringing off the hook. Uh, 
tens of thousands of people reached out to us and, um, you know, in a positive way. You know, the industry was upset um, and, uh, you know, that was to be expected. But again, it was for all. There were so many great things that happened uh, as a result of that. It's just, you know, that that's we knew that there was going to be a little bit of that. Um, You know, again, when you talk about things, people don't want you to talk about. That's kind of the fallout. So now let's do a follow up to that. Subsequently on CNBC, you're on with the head of the Bats Exchange and Michael Lewis and a few other people. And that exchange turns surreal. He starts saying stuff that turns out to be not true. He challenges you. You were almost, uh, you know, I know you don't want to say this personally, but it looked like you were holding back because you don't (laughs) want to beat down this poor guy who's only the president of of the biggest exchange at the time. What, What was that about? That uh, that was that was an interesting experience. Uh, that was my first time on live television. I'd never actually been on live TV, and you looked like a pro. And, and, you were just so smooth, and in, in the middle of it, um, I just remember saying to myself, "Like, is this is this actually happening?" It just it was it was it was it was kind of crazy. What what stood out was you turned to him and said, "You really want to do this? Let's do this." <laughs> that yeah. that was the quote. It's like yeah. I'm giving you an out, and yeah. you're not taking it. Yeah. So for those people who may not have seen this exchange. He made a number of statements that turned out to be patently false. Yes. The New York State uh, uh, Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, yep. forced Bats to issue a, I don't even want to call it a clarification. It was a retraction yep. and uh, basically said we were wrong. Yep. I-, I was referring to what we're going to do in the future yep. or some yep. nonsense like that. And a few months later, he's out of a job. Right. Yes. Any correlation between that incident and it wasn't like he announced his yeah. retirement. He was gone and they announced uh, he was no longer with it, them. It, it's hard to say. Um, you know, I think what was important about that is that um, that the attorney general made him correct his statements. And and what you have a Amazing. lot of times is you have what, what we were arguing about is completely uh, unknown to the to the general public. Anyone watching that, very few people, I'm sure, understood even what we were fighting about and we were fighting about a very important part of the market, meaning there are multiple ways market data is distributed. And essentially, are you using a slow feed to price trades for all of your participants, knowing that some people who trade on your exchange have a very fast feed? And that, that, that was the argument. And that's um, what he, they misstated. Yes. And I think without that level of accountability, no one would have known who was saying what. It just would have looked like you know, a bunch of crazy people yelling at, on television. Um, so I think holding people accountable is extremely important. It's the way to make the markets better. Everyone says that they want the markets to improve. You got to start holding people accountable. That's the way to make the market. If there's if there's no recourse for saying whatever you want, um, you know, at some point the market's just not going to improve. And I think that you know that was an important step. At least somebody took charge there and said, you know, you have to own up to what you said. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today, Brad Katsuyama, he was featured in Michael Lewis's book, Flash Boys, and he is the co-founder of the IEX alternative trading platform, hopefully soon to be a major uh, exchange. Let's talk a little bit about IEX. Um, Dark pools, something that was commonly used by big firms. Explain exactly what dark pools are. So dark pool is kind of the the you know the street lingo for alternative trading system, and really what it means is that um, they're slightly less regulated um, than exchanges, and what they can't do is they can't publish 
bids and offers, which means everything that happens in them is is essentially dark. Mm-hmm. Um, they but, was, but you know, they're good guys. They're not going to hurt anybody. <laughs> they're not going to scalp a quarter from everybody who comes in there and not tell them about it. Right. I think, you know, the interesting thing about dark pools is they were started with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if a bank has a buyer and a seller, they shouldn't have to go on the exchange and trade that and pay the exchange to do so. They should be able to do that internally. And um, they ended up, I think the competition was so fierce Many of them ended up morphing into something that um, that was not intended, and uh, you know, over the course of you know the past decade, um, that's kind of what's happened. And I think we have forty over forty dark pools in the United States. That Amazing. number probably comes down over the next couple of years. So I began my career as a trader, and the question was always, "Hey, do you put the order out on Instanet?" I know you know uh, Sal Arnuk and, and yep, know them. Uh, Joe Saluzzi of Themis Trading. Those guys started an Instanet, yep. or at least were there for a long time before they decided to launch their own own firm. Also critics of, of high-frequency trading. So uh, the thought of these dark pools where nobody really knows what's going on and mm-hmm. we're just relying on brokerage firms to uh, you know do the right thing and be on their best behavior wasn't very satisfying to you as someone trying to get orders executed. Well, I think, you know, it, there there are some dark pools, I think, that serve a very good purpose. Um, and there are others that I think have sacrificed quality for trading more volume. And, um, you know, it's, there, there's, there's a, a direct correlation between the quality of trades and the, and the frequency of trades. Um, so I think that, again, it's, you know, you look back to the days of Instanet. Um, you know, there was a purpose. If, if someone has a million shares to buy, you can't just force them to put that all out on, on the exchange and display it. It's going to have a very adverse impact on the ability sure. to, you know, to complete that order. Um, so there is a home for large orders in dark pools. I do feel like, you know, we need more disclosure. We need much more transparency in how dark pools operate. Um, and I think as we get more transparency and disclosure, you're going to see a lot of dark pools, you know, shut down. Um, but the ones that are left, you know, will serve a purpose because there, there definitely is a stock exchange can't solve every problem uh, that every investor has because uh, a lot of times their orders are too big for the markets themselves. So now let's talk a little bit about IEX in, in the process of setting up or trying to execute orders, you came up with a few insights which had to do with, hey, if we can find a way to get the orders to arrive at all the exchanges at the same time, we're not going to be scalped or picked off by high-frequency traders. Uh, that was originally the Thor product that you had developed at RBC? That was the Thor router at RBC, was was really to say, if there is this geographical disparity, meaning you know, our order arrives at the exchange closest to us first, why not you know stagger when you send out the orders to try to arrive at all places at the same time? And it was it's a lot harder than it sounds because latency changes throughout the day. And it's milliseconds we're describing. Now right? now we get down into microseconds. So um, you have to be within a few micros, a few millionths of a second, have the order arrive at a dozen exchanges all at our, once. Our goal was to have it done under 400 microseconds, and we got it down to about 290 microseconds. But when we did that, our fill rate went to 100%. Um, that product could actually now buy or sell what people saw on their screens. Uh, and it was the easiest product to sell because you would just walk into a client's office, a mutual fund or a hedge fund and say, if you see a million Bank of America on the offer and you try to buy that, what percentage do you get? And they're going to say anything from 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70%. I'll get you 100%. They'll say, give me the product. I mean, it was, it was really that, it was pretty simple. The challenge was this, is that our, our, our revenues took off and then they started to flatline. Um, and one client put it, put it the best when he said to me, 
Brad, we love what you've done. We love your team. We love RBC. You've only solved 3% of my problem because that's the amount of, of commission. That's how much I can trade with RBC. Uh, I have to trade with all these other banks for, for legitimate reasons. Right. Banking, they research. They soft dollar. They get the research. Prime Absolutely. brokerage, et cetera. So um, that was kind of the moment when we decided to leave RBC and start IEX because we realized, number one, no broker can solve this problem. Even the biggest broker. If I'm Goldman Sachs, 10, 12% of market share, what does that mean? Um, Still leaves 90%. That's absolutely not The way to solve this was to actually be a stock exchange because the stock exchanges have enabled uh, what's really happened. You know, I think that, that in a way there was a responsibility by the exchanges to prevent some of what's happened and they, they've kind of enabled it. We're speaking with Brad Katsuyama, co-founder of IEX. So let's talk a little bit about the shoebox. Mm. You came up with the insight that said, hey, everybody is racing to go faster and faster. What would happen if we forced everybody to slow down? Yes. And the original idea was, well, let's put our exchange in Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> yep. and not let anybody co-locate their servers yeah. there. But then um, one of the guys came up with a suggestion you don't need physically miles. You just need a spooled That's right. of fiber optics, yep. which is essentially a shoebox with 38 miles worth of fiber optics. 38 miles of coiled cable. Absolutely. Of coiled cable. Yes. And and explain what the shoebox of coiled cable does to orders sure. that come into IES. And it was interesting because the guy who came up with the idea worked at a high-frequency trading firm. Uh, previously, previously, before he was working Absolutely, yeah, and worked at I. And what they did is they used these spools to recreate geographical distances. So like in Europe, when you're looking at the difference between different exchanges, it's all done in the same room. There's just different levels of spooling happening and you can recreate, quote, physical distance in, in a single room, right? As they're huh. testing strategies. But so he came up with the idea. The premise behind the idea was that we never wanted anyone to be able to execute a trade on IEX with advanced information, right? Um, there's this... there. There's two things exchanges really look to sell. One is they sell very fast data, right? So if you want high-speed data, you got to pay for it. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with someone buying fast data because someone will always get it first and someone will always get it last, right? Mm -hmm. um, someone in New Jersey will get it before someone in London just basically based on the speed of light, right? So they the physical distance is how long it takes that message to go to from from New the exchange to New Jersey or the exchange across the Atlantic. Absolutely, right. So so fast data is one thing, but the notion of co-location, place your server right next to the exchange matching engine, buy this high-speed cable, what that allows is the person that's buying the fast information to trade hundreds and thousands of times before that information makes its way to the end, the last person, right? Um we inherently see a problem of fairness in that. So what we've done is we take very fast data into IEX. Uh, we buy all the direct feeds. We've spent a lot of time uh, and money and effort in getting very fast data to IEX, but we, we realize we'll never be as fast as the fastest high-frequency traders. The shoebox, essentially, that coiled cable is to say, that's, th that's our head start. So if they get information that the stock has gone from 10 to 9, and they want to come in here and sell stock at 10, against a buyer who doesn't know that the stock has moved lower, right? Um, they send that order to IEX and it starts to go around the shoebox mm -hmm. and it goes around the coil. And as it's going around the coil, IEX will get the update. The price has changed from 10 to nine and we will not let that trade take place at 10. That's the whole thing, right? The exchange's job is kind of like the referee in a way. Um, you have to understand what the conditions for a fair trade is. It's both parties having equal relative information. The price is nine. Don't let the stock trade at 10. The issue is that high-speed traders have faster information than the exchanges. 
which means that they always know about a price before the exchange actually understands this is the market-wide price. And I think that's that's the shoebox is about us slowing them down. How much does the shoebox actually slow HFT it's down. 350 microseconds is the total. So the shoebox is located in a different data center. That data center is about five miles away, plus the shoebox adds another 38 miles. In total, it's 350 microseconds, millionths of a second, one one thousandth of the blink of an eye. That's amazing. Um, but it's enough time for IEX to always ensure that we know the most up-to-date market information so that we can fairly and consistently fairly price trades. So their orders can't front front run anybody else's information. They can't pick someone off who doesn't have information that they have. Yes. Mil- milliseconds ahead of them. Milliseconds Micro, or microseconds. microseconds. Absolutely. Milliseconds, a thousandths of a second, that's too slow. Yeah, I mean it's we now measure everything in microseconds. That that's just absolutely astonishing. So there was a conversation, the part of of the book where IEX launches in in Flash Boys. And you were concerned, hey, you know, is anybody going to come to this party? We we just built this whole exchange on the theory that people want fair pricing. They right. don't want to give anybody an advantage. And you had no idea if anybody <laughs> yeah. was going to show up. That, what what was it like launching into that circumstance? It was nerve wracking. To say um, the least. Because, because if there was this kind of chicken and egg problem, um, brokers would say, well, you have no volume. So why would I send you any volume? Meaning liquidity begets liquidity. Right. If everyone takes that approach, you'll never trade a single share because everyone's waiting for someone else to trade a share. So you need someone to go first. And 50 million shares was your number that you thought, all right, if we get at least 50 million a day, maybe we can survive. 50 million was kind of, yeah, it was a, it was a survival number. Um, and we ended up doing 560,000 our first day. Uh, some people were predicting we do 2,500 shares the first day. So it was, <laughs> no, nobody had it. The guy with the most experience launching markets is the guy, Matt Trudeau. He runs he runs our products. And he's launched seven different markets globally. His prediction the first day was 2,500 shares. Um, and what are you doing now? Well, our record a few weeks ago was 182 million shares. That's fantastic. So yeah, the, the growth has been nice. Um, Can you stick around a little bit? We'll throw the rest of this on the podcast portion. Absolutely, yes. So I've been speaking with Brad Katsuyama. He is the co-founder of IEX Exchange. If you like this conversation, be sure and check out the rest of our chat. That'll be on Bloomberg, SoundCloud, and of course, Apple iTunes. Be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg View or follow me on Twitter At Ritholtz, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. Now I could uh, throw my papers away and just kind of cut back. Brad, thank you so much for doing this. This No, thanks very much. You know, I've been somewhat of a critic of high-frequency trading for a while. Um, One of the interesting things that uh, Joe Saluzzi had said not too long ago was – on a scale of zero to ten, where where are we in in the process getting better? And he said we're at a four, um, which was kind of surprising. You know the the pushback that I've gotten from people um, who uh, I don't want to say are pro HFT, but just aren't as critical. Let's say um, uh, Jack Brennan is chairman of Vanguard. He says HFT has. Lowered costs, lowered expenses for them, tightened spreads. Um, Cliff Asnes of AQR is a huge shop, runs $100-plus billion. He thinks uh, his comment was, hey, listen, look, you guys complain that liquidity disappears uh, when HFT guys unplug their machines. 
How is that any different than what specialists used to do? If they don't like the price, you don't get executed. They just drop their bid further and further. How do you respond to those sort of comments? I think a lot of times um, you could interchange HFT with just technology. Mm -hmm. Technology has made things cheaper, has allowed spreads to tighten. Decimalization helps spreads tighten as well. But, you know, I think a lot of the benefits people bestow on the general category of high-frequency trading have more to do with technology than it does to do with anything. Um, The difficult part about the debate around high-frequency trading, which is why it's still a debate, five years later, we're still talking about a lot of the same things, um, is that- We we haven't even talked about the flash crash, which there's still disagreements as to what the underlying cause was. You know, the, the, the toughest part is, is that not everyone who uses a computer to trade is doing harm to the market, and not everyone who's using a computer to trade is doing it for the benefit of society, right? It's people are doing both, and I feel like you know the one the one part about IEX that 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 I'm really proud of um, is the fact that we never made this about shutting out high frequency traders per se. We just built a market we felt could not be gamed, and a small segment of high frequency traders still showed up. Oh really? Um, and I give them a lot of credit for doing that, right? So, uh, Virtu is one, and um, they're you know, they're pretty huge, aren't they? Virtu, Vir- they're, huge... they're one of the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say they're 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 a very good partner of ours at IEX. But when we walk through the things that we're not giving them, the thing, the advantages they won't have that they might have on other markets, they didn't care at all. They said, "This is good. This is good for the market. We'll be there day one." We really? like what you're doing, and we've both been supportive of each other. So wow. it, it was never really about saying all computerized trading is bad. You know, my my. When I when I traded New York listed tech on the on the stock exchange floor, and I also traded over the counter on the Nasdaq terminal, I liked electronic trading a hundred times more. Um, Faster, cheaper, better, easier, instantaneous confirm. More efficient, absolutely. It was just it was there was no question the way the market was going to go. Um, the challenge is that a lot of people are using technology. Um, to make money and scalp off of traditional everyday investors. The markets become, at times, more volatile intraday. Uh, volumes are inflated. It's just, you know, these, it's, it's, since it can go both ways, the people that want to provide cover can use very generic statements about technology driven trading and call it HFT. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can come out, or, or Joe and Sal can come out, or Michael Lewis can write about HFT and, and really focus specifically on the, the parts of it that are bad. Um, and the fact that you know it's cheaper to trade now than it was 20 years ago, that's not a defense for the things that we're saying because we're giving very specific critiques um, and, and there's very generic replies to that. And I think again, it's it's part of the argument. but for us it's you know it's more about fairness and, and that's why you know I'll come on here and say uh, a firm like Virtu is a partner of IEX, even though they're quote classified a high frequency trader because they've chosen to play by our rules. We've set the rules. You know, we're experts in the market. We know what we're doing. We have people from exchanges and high-frequency trader trading firms that work at IEX. We set the ground rules. They've decided to play. I give them a lot of credit for that. What What other firms that are thought of as HFTs will trade through uh, IEX? So G, uh, GTS Securities is another one. Uh-huh. Um, you know, IMC Trades. Uh, you know, Knight has a has a variety of businesses, um, but Knight's a good partner of ours as well, right? They, so, they at one point in time were one of the biggest, if not the biggest, volume on Nasdaq. Absolutely, but you know, they they have a very diversified business, but they've been good partners of ours, right? So it, it's you know, and it's in Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, in 2014 was our largest volume provider. So um, the 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 goal for us really was to build a market that we believe to be fair. 
and fair consistently. That's I mean, if, if the stock market is not fair, what does that mean for everything else, right? It, it is. It's 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 that was the goal, and I, I, we've done that. And the fact that a, a wide variety of people have shown up uh, and provided support that gives us a lot of confidence that this this is this is the right model. And, and I think a lot of people like the fact that the market itself is fixing some of the structural errors it has. This is a market-based solution to a whole series of problems. Yeah, you know, we're we if you look back the last century, right? We're caught in this pretty pretty vicious negative cycle. You have a scandal, it's followed by regulation. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a perfect rule. That regulation will create loopholes and inefficiencies, unintended consequences. People look to exploit the loopholes. And they exploit it so badly that it creates the next scandal, which creates the next set of regulation. And and as as regulation increases, it raises the barriers to entry for disruption. Mm-hmm. It makes it harder to disrupt an industry that's so heavily regulated, um, which means that in a way, the people causing the scandals are the ones that are that that remain in this industry as the walls get higher and higher. Um, so you guys are the uh, Uber of finance. <laughs> Is that what you know, we're saying? We're, we're, we feel like, you know, in a way we're trying to we're trying to we're trying to disrupt Wall Street in a productive way. Um, it's not productive the relationship Wall Street has with Main Street because Main Street needs Wall Street whether they like it or not. Um, they just don't like the way Wall Street has behaved over the last, you know, few years. And I think that um, you know, we're huge proponents of of what Wall Street does, but we think it could be done in a better in a better way. There's no no doubt about that. The cycle you described of scandal, regulation, loopholes, gaming it scam. Yeah. What was a little different, and I have a lot of crit- criticism of HFT, and maybe we'll we'll get to some. I'd love to hear your responses. Was the fact that suddenly we had the New York Stock Exchange that was a nonprofit sort of public commons almost. Mm-hmm. Suddenly it becomes a for-profit entity whose goal is no longer serving the investor but serving their clients who turn out to be the ones who could pay the most or the HFTs yeah. who are paying for the early look, who are paying for co-location. The way that structure came about was, look, if I if I said, hey, here's a system where you could look at people's orders before they're executed and front run them, that can't possibly be legal. But if I set up a series of high-speed lanes and slow-speed lanes and you could sniff this and see those packets, effectively it's the same thing but yeah. somehow legal. Well, the, the funny part is, is that you know, as, as you, when you read certain things, certain fines that come out or when you read – if you replace the act of a computer with an actual person – that person would be penalized a lot worse than the computer gets penalized in today's market because some of the stuff is kind of outrageous. Uh, what happens? And I, but I, but programmers don't get penalized. They're taking advantage of, uh, you know, it's like playing a video game. You you're not penalized for yeah. shooting them out of the sky in a video game. Yep. That's all this is is a video game for money. Yeah, I think I think you know you kind of hit the nail on the head where you know in essence, IEX is a free market solution. Um, it's our choice, and we're trying to correct inefficiencies. We're trying to patch up the loopholes. We're trying to and, and trying to make the system better. Um, in a way, the exchanges could have done what we've done. Uh, we've done it all within the regulation. We haven't asked for any rule change, but they chose to sell technology and sell data. They're, they're, they're part of, in a way, exploiting the loopholes. Right. And um, it's very hard to get them to fix themselves. There are very few companies that can disrupt themselves. Well, you know, if you look what Apple did with constantly lowering the price of the iPod, most companies, and to a point where huge, huge improvements, the same thing with the phones, and 
That's unusual. Typically, companies are disrupted from the outside, not, hey, this is our bread of but- bread and butter. What do you mean we're going to drop the price in half, yeah. but it'll be twice as good? Uh, nobody does that. Yeah, I mean, part a lot of people will say, you know, this is the right thing to do for my shareholders, i.e. make as much money as humanly possible from my position in the market. And, um, you know, I think that's it's a, it's a, it's a valid statement. Um, it also of, serves to excuse a lot of really bad behavior. With, um, without question, without question. So I think you know, you for us, it's you know, starting a new market in 2013, uh, understanding very clearly the the mistakes that others have made. Um, you know, we just feel like we're in a very good position to just build a different kind of marketplace. And let's talk about that a sec. So. You know, in the book, um, and I want to talk a little bit about Michael Lewis uh, and a little later, because um, I think if he keeps at this writing thing, he's going to be really influential one day because <laughs> he shows a lot of potential. Yeah. I love his stuff. I, I, every yeah. time a new book of his comes out, I save it for vacation. And yeah. it's my, it's just my favorite, most delightful vacation reading. Yeah. So, um, and he, his columns that he publishes here are ridiculous because you can have a column that's doing really well in the terminal, mm-hmm. and then a Michael Lewis column comes out, and that's it. Nobody is even close. Right. It's it's like number one with a bullet for three days. It yeah. just hangs around. Yeah. You look at most, you know, there are ways on the terminal, uh, most most emailed, uh, highest ranked, most read, yeah. and his are just like glued to the top. It's it's yeah. almost uh, it's almost funny. So you get the idea to set up this company. You have to think. Gee, this is going to cost tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, was RBC supportive of this? Were they an investor in this? No, so RBC is not an investor. Uh, originally, we went around to try to do this uh, with RBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I brought the idea to to my bosses there, and I said, "This is an idea. Let's start an exchange." Uh, the feedback we got from our clients, the big mutual funds, um, was that we like the idea, but RBC can't be involved. Because they're a broker, or because because other brokers would not want to use a solution provided by RBC, um, you know. So, so are any of your outside investors brokers? Or? No, no. So, so Goldman is not an investor. Goldman is not an investor. Yeah, no one who's a subscriber to our platform, uh, meaning is, brokers, is an investor. No broker is an investor in in IX. So, so it's all mutual funds, hedge funds. Uh, there's some venture firms. There's you know entrepreneurs. There's it's all sorts. I, uh, of- in in the book they mentioned David Einhorn and I think was Bill Ackman. Bill Ackman. Okay. Um, Who Dan else? Loeb. Dan Loeb. Capital no. Group. Franklin Templeton. Mass Mutual. Jim Clark from Netscape. Sure. Uh, Steve Wynn. Um, so we have we have a really great group of end users. Um, and it's it's very you know it, most people ho- own a percent. Like it's very very small. Um, but we wanted, you know, a broad consortium of interests that represented the end users of the stock market, and really, it's the issuers and it's the investors in the stock market that matter most. Um, How are you going to avoid the temptation when uh, I don't even know who owns Arcanet these days comes along and says, "All right, here's a billion dollars. We want to buy you," or when Goldman says, "Hey, we can take you guys public." What What do you do about that? Well, I think, I mean, you know, we. We we thought a long time about IEX starting as a nonprofit, mm-hmm. um, and the reason we decided against it is because we're competing against for-profit entities. And when it comes down to competing for talent, when it comes down to a lot of things, um, we couldn't let the solution suffer because the, of the way we structured the company. 
Um, so, you know, we'll continue to look for, you know, just doing the right thing for the mission. That's the, that's the key. Uh, there's been a lot of interest in IEX already. Um, you know, we, we, we've turned, we've turned all that down because we feel like we're, you know, we're still on a mission, but you know, if the right partner comes along and you think it's the right thing to do for the mission and the business, it's really, this, this is a mission based company. Um, we care a lot more about that than anything. And it's very distributed. You know, I, I don't own a huge chunk of IEX, um, I mean, we're going around all the, talking. All your partners, all the guys you started every, this. Every with? single person at IX owns equity, um, and it's very evenly spread out amongst you know kind of the the top. There's there's uh, you know uh, you know my what's my, the structure? My what's the management structure at the company? It's you. So it's, it's so yeah. So it's me. Um, Ronan Ryan is our chief the, strategy the officer. Irishman the who Irishman came over. Right? Uh, Rob Park as described our, in the book. And Rob Park was um, our CTO. He he worked with uh, me at RBC, and and John Schwall is our chief operating officer. Um, hired him at RBC from Bank of America. He was the he was kind of the the, the LinkedIn guy that did all the the background research. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we Don Bullerman uh, was a co-founder. He came from Nasdaq. Um, so we you know Zoran Perkov ran global operations at Nasdaq. He came aboard. John Ramsey came from the SEC. Sophia Lee came from LiquidNet. We just we just. You know, we just feel very lucky. Claudia Crowley, we just hired as our chief regulatory officer. She came from the New York Stock Exchange. It's like the 1929 Yankees. That's a uh, that's a murderer's row. You we're get. we're building. You know, and and the great part about it is is you know it's IX is not the best short term uh, lucrative place to work. Right, mm-hmm. it's, people aren't getting rich this year, um, so people come for the mission. They come because they believe in it and they believe in it long term. Um, you know, and and the goal is to be successful long term. So there's a long term payoff to this. People come um, looking out three, five years, and that those are the kind of employees that you really want. And you know, part of the the, the challenge, you know, on Wall Street in general is a lot of people live year to year on guarantees. Right. Um, there's an, a huge sense of loyalty. Um, what I find is that you know certain firms are incredibly well cultured, and certain firms are just completely toxic. And um, you know, That's you fascinating. you want to build long term culture. Um, and again, it's it's we're trying to build that at IEX. That that's really interesting. So you now you've hit 150 plus million shares a day. Uh, what sort of revenue can this company do? I mean, are you guys always going to be a niche player, or can you scale up to be five or ten percent of the total daily yeah. uh, volume? When you look at it, um, we're one we're around one percent of the total market right now, um, but we can only really compete for fifteen or twenty percent. Of the hundred pie, fifty to sixty percent of the volume every day is displayed quotes, which only exchanges are authorized to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ten percent roughly is the open, close, and auction plus pre and post market trading. Twenty percent trades retail, you know, with wholesalers and internalized. So th- there's so much volume that we don't have access to right now. Right. Um, becoming an exchange obviously unlocks a lot of a lot of potential for us. So. Um, you know, we feel like this is kind of just the beginning. You know, if, if back to you know talk about Joe thinking we're in the the fourth inning or four out of ten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're third or fourth inning uh, of the game. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of ball to be played. So once you become an exchange, and I I have a hard time imagining that the SEC isn't gonna say, hey, these guys solve a lot of problems, take some workload off of us. You become an exchange over the next twelve months, eighteen months, somewhere yeah. along those time that timeline. We're hopeful. We're hopeful it happens this year. Okay, um, so before 2015 yeah. is over, what does that do to the potential volume that you guys can capture? I mean, it it unlocks more than half the market uh, mm-hmm. that we just can't touch right now, and I think that um, you know that's significant. And and we're 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 keeping the principles of what we do. Um, 
we're not paying rebates. Uh, make or taker is obviously no a, make or taker, no uh, order flow payments. Basically, yeah, it's, it's just a fair price, and that's what you get. Simple, transparent, and fair stock exchange. I mean, that's what we're trying to be. And um, you know, there's an elegance that comes with simplicity, meaning people understand what your market does and why right. and why you exist. Um, and the stock market is anything but that. It's you. You need to hire people from a firm to understand what that firm actually does, right? And so we, you know, most of what we've learned from exchanges, you can't find by going on Google. You have to find people that have worked at exchanges or find people that know them intimately well. So I think you know it's amazing. The the function of the stock market is so central to the economy. It's amazing how few people know how the stock market actually works. Myself being one of those people five years ago, right? So. Um, you know, we want to build a market that people understand. That, that that's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about Michael Lewis because he's come up as a thread throughout. And full disclosure, I write for Bloomberg View, which is published. The publisher is David Shipley, and I know they have a long-standing relationship. Um, but you and I haven't discussed this beforehand. Sure. So I'm kind of draw. I sent you, hey, let's talk about these things. But let's talk a little bit about Michael Michael Lewis. So y- you finally meet him. In, in your windowless office with you, <laughs> yeah. and, you and Ryan, yeah. and he starts to, you see the gears turning yeah. you mentioned yeah. earlier. How long does that conversation go on? What What is that like? This is for yeah. the Vanity Fair magazine article, yeah. not for the book. Yeah, it was, um, I had I had read almost everything that he had ever written. Um, I read Liar's Poker, I'm sure like everyone does. Before they come into business, you ask, what book should I read? You read Liar's Poker. See, I always tell people Market Wizards. but um, I read that too. Because I find Liar's Poker gives them, hey, that's an 80s perspective. That universe hasn't existed for decades. Yeah, the funny part is Michael Lewis is kind of horrified that that people read Liar's Poker as a how-to manual on Wall Street because he wrote it as kind of like a warning story. Right, right. It was an apocryphal tale. Hey, don't let this happen to your sons and daughters. And people actually use it as, oh, so that's uh, that's what it's like. That's right. Um, And Moneyball. um, Love that book. It's probably my favorite Michael Lewis book, including Flash Boys. I I love Moneyball. It kind of changed my perspective on on business and and, and, and challenged me to think differently. Um, The book was great. The movie was great. Yes. You you mentioned Jim Clark. The New New Thing, which I think may be his least known book, is another one. It's amazing. It's a great book. It's a fat, and it's amazing that you mentioned. Wait, that's a Michael Lewis book. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge book. Yes, and the the next one I have queued up for vacation is The Blind Side. Yes, the football book, which I have not yet read. Fantastic. That's what that's what people have said. It's it's so you finally get to meet this guy who you have a tremendous amount of respect for. Yeah, what's that first meeting like? You know, we we just try to um, convey what we knew. Um, and and do it in a way that that would make him somewhat interested in us. At the time, we had no money, um, we had nothing. You had and already launched the firm. We we had started the firm uh, with our own money, uh, which was which basically we ran out of. Um, and we, you know, at at the time, we kind of you know, it. I don't think it ever would have been a personal choice of mine um, to to be in the position I'm in um, because it just it changes your life um, to be it it. it being on 60 Minutes, being in this book, it, it has changed my life. Um, but as the CEO of IEX, it was absolutely the right thing to sure. do. So we, we kind of went all in. We had nothing to lose at that point. And I think um, uh, you know, the very first thing we did is we went and got in a, in a car 
and drove to all the different um, with data Michael centers Lewis. with Michael Lewis in the car. We drove, we drew out the map and said, you know, here's why our orders were getting to different exchanges at different times. So you go out the Holland Tunnel and you take That's him right. to. That's right. He says, I want to drive these routes. So we, we go, okay. So which, which sounds like him. Yeah. So we got in the car. And, um, and, and, and and drove the routes and, um, you know, spent the day with him going to different data centers. You know, he walked away. His head was spinning to think, I just I just saw the stock markets, but but not the stock markets people see right. on TV so and on CNBC. So windowless building in New Jersey. That's right. And um, so so it went from, I'm going to write a short story about IEX, and which, again, was super exciting. He's going to put it in Vanity Fair. Um but he started talking to more and more people. He just he, he every time he came to New York, he'd spend a little time with us. But he he was out there canvassing. Meeting, he, the amount of connections he has is right. incredible. Of course, it, it, the, the amazing part is is we were going around to the asset management community to try to raise money. Um, and it, as we started to talk to Michael Lewis, oh yeah, we talked to him for for the Big Short. We talked to him for the Big Short. Like every other person I talked to talked to him for the Big Short. I was like, now they never would offer this information if they didn't know that we were talking to him. Um, but you just realize how many people he actually knows. Um, and some people at firms, I'm were i sure they'd be fired if they knew that they were talking to Michael Lewis. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. It's, it's, uh, you know, and he's got a way. He's, he's, uh, he, he's brilliant at what he does. I call him the poet laureate of Wall Street. He, nobody tells a finance story the way he does. And it's always focused on these interesting characters of which you're now one of. You strike, <laughs> by the way, anyone meets you on the street, they're like, oh, yeah, I met Brad. He's a good guy. Yeah. He is. You yeah. know, yeah, for, I think he's Canadian. Yeah. I mean, that would be it. Most of the other characters in his books, there's uh, Jim Clark yes. or Michael Burry or, or some of these other guys, yeah. they're always a little off kilter yeah. and fascinating. I'm the most unlikely Michael Lewis character probably ever to be in a book. And I it, think that's right. Yeah, he, he, had, he told me he had a hard time writing about me. Really? Um, simply because um, he said he goes, it's it, he he was he was trying to dig up anything he could on me. Well, the in thing my about childhood. you being in the Israeli Air Force that was really stunning. <laughs> yeah. You were a fighter pilot, and I'm only kidding. Yeah. I'm only joking. Yeah. By the way, I find myself having to constantly when when you're a little bit sarcastic, uh, you have to clarify it because someone's going to say, "Wait, Brad wasn't a fighter pilot." <laughs> yeah, you're, you have to be without a doubt the most. Yeah. Lacking abnormalities is the best. You're yeah. you're an ordinary Wall yes. Street guy. Hey, you had a, a big job as a trader at RBC. You made yeah. a lot of money. You were making yeah. seven figures there. Yeah. That that had to be a lot of uh, a lot of fun, a lot of hard work. Yeah. But nice to put a little money away. And now yeah. you're running a startup. I, I that spent... must that must be the most aberrational thing you're doing is giving up a, a seven figure job to say, okay, yeah. we're going to go fix Wall Street and we're not going to make a lot of money yeah. at first for it. Quit. Quitting was was definitely out of character for me. Uh, I probably could have retired at RBC. It, it, it was actually the only company I'd ever worked for. I was an intern there and just and just stayed because it was comfortable. Uh, I got offered more money to work elsewhere, but I liked the people. I, I, I had a great relationship with my immediate boss, and um, it, it was it was kind of a, a different thing. Part of leaving the big thing, the re- one of the big reasons I left was that after we we created Thor, and RBC's electronic platform took off. Uh, all of the people on on all of my key people, including myself, were getting big job offers away at different firms, mm-hmm. um, and it became very evident to me that that doing nothing would have led to our team getting dismantled. They were gonna, it was going to break up anyway. Yes, and so you might as well take the whole team together elsewhere. Well, that that part of that was I sat down with with John and Ronan and Rob and said, you know, how important is this for us to stay together? And and 
we had built, you know, when you go through things like that and, and, you know, it's, it's, you come, you come from nowhere to, to, you know, doing something and you had discovered the problems we had discovered because every rock we turned over had something under it. And mm-hmm. it was just this amazing, like mystery story. Like every person you meet, you're just, another piece that gets added to the puzzle. Um, we kind of collectively decided, you know, we're, we're willing to take this risk. And there's one really funny moment where, uh, I'm home and I'm talking to my wife. I'm like, you know, we're getting ready to leave. And she's like, well, what percent chance do you think this has of working? I think I'm like, oh, I think it's pretty low. I think 20, this idea we have right now, probably 25%. And she's like, you should probably clarify that with Rob and Ronan and John. So I came in the next day and I said, guys, write on a piece of paper, what percent chance you think this idea we have right now is for IEX, but it's not IEX as you know it today. It was a different version of IEX. Uh-huh. It actually wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. Um, this idea we have right now, what, do you, what chance do you think this idea has of working I was the highest at twenty five percent. Everyone else was lower, um, which was funny. But they all, what we all, what we all agreed was that there was a seventy five percent chance that the four of us would figure this out. Like, so that's a very different set of odds. Yes. Hey, listen, this one issue may not work, but we could pivot to something. That's right. And what was that pivot? Was it the shoebox? Was it, it part? Part of it was the shoe. The, the very first idea we had was we wanted to be the smart order router for the street, which means everyone send us your orders and we'll route them out to the exchanges. Um, now the problem with that is all, all the big banks have built their own smart order routers, so so it, it's a very invasive request to say I'm going to now route all your orders on, right. on you know for you. Um, that that idea never would have worked, and um, but we quit on the notion of that idea, which which was slightly insane, except for <laughs> that we had uh, a lot of faith in each other, and I think that um, and a great track record. You guys had. Let, let's clarify this a little yeah. bit because a, a lot of startups have launched with a lot less. Right. First, you guys essentially figured out what the heck was going on with the market right. when there really didn't seem anybody else that yeah. really got it in the way that you guys did, number one. Number two, you created a product, Thor, yeah. which solved a lot of those problems. Yep. So there had to be some degree of confidence. Okay, we know more about what's wrong with the structure than other people have. We've already demonstrated an ability to use technology to resolve it. Can we take those two things and put it together and build a real yeah. company around it? Yeah, I mean, you kind of you, you you nailed it. Um, the one other big point um, that I made to my wife was that because uh, she was really the one she she was the one who allowed IX to happen, right? <laughs> our, our our second son was born three days after my last day at RBC, so wow. it was there was a lot going on in our, in our personal. Oh, life. she must have been thrilled with you. Yeah, well, we 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 got to the right place, um, and she's been amazingly supportive. But what I said to her is, I said. There are very few people in this world that can solve the problem we're trying to solve. And it may not work, but you know, I I would probably regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't actually try. So you had um, you had no choice. This was this wasn't are we gonna do this? It's I'm running out of reasons not to do this. That that was kind of it. And and uh I, I ran out of reasons not to do it. And and um and and it's it's always scary to leave, um, especially a job you're comfortable at, you've been at your whole life. Um but yeah, it was it, by the end of it, it felt definitely like the right decision. And you know, RBC is still a great client of ours. I still have a great relationship with uh, with my former team there, and um, you know, they were very supportive, and, and they're still doing really well. So it's it kind of worked out for everybody. But um, yeah, it was it was it was interesting times. But you know, it, to be in to be in a Michael Lewis book, never in a million. I spent my entire life trying to just get along with people. I'm, I'm more of a go with the flow kind of guy. I don't have these like heroic tendencies where, you know, I'm running for class president. I didn't do any of that. Um, 
fairly normal guy. And this just, just happened. Michael Lewis described it best when he said, "You're a normal guy in an abnormal situation." And, to and to say like, the least. Yeah. So so now you go from the conversation with I'm investigating HFT to. Hey, I think I want to do a book. I want to do a short story on IEX. Yeah. At what point did that magazine story become, "Hey, I'm going to do a book and you guys are going to be the driving factors in it." So, so he he came to the conclusion about the book. His his journey through high frequency trading and the exchanges and market structure was similar to mine. Everyone he talked to and the more rocks he turned over, the more stuff he found. Uh, and he stumbled on a lot of stuff himself. And um, yeah, he's good at that, isn't he? Oh, he's amazing. And and by the end, he basically said, "This is going to be a blockbuster." Now, what I didn't know—did he really say that? He said, "This before is the book was published." He said, "This is going to be explosive. Uh, this is going to be explosive." Because wow. he he was consuming everything that was written, and he realized he was writing things that have not been written before. Um, and, and I think, which is unusual because let let's go back and look at well, Moneyball was unique. Uh, the new new thing wasn't so much unique, but just a uniquely yeah. told story. Big Short the, was a retrospective. Of uh, yeah, what I mean, my yeah. uh, you know when I wrote Bailout Nation, it was one of the first books on the financial crisis, and I couldn't read anything afterwards. Yeah. And then the Big Short comes out, and I'm like, I'm dying to read it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to hold this till February. We're yeah. going to Barbados, yeah. and I'm going to read. So the year after the February after the book came out, and I think it came out in like May or June. Yeah. I'm, I have the book on my night table, yeah. night table for eight months before we go on vacation, and I can't wait to read it. And I thought he just did a fantastic job with that. Yeah. It was such a compelling story, yeah. and all the characters are so amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, another, uh, you know, another Michael Lewis book yeah. that just you know blows your doors off. Yeah. And then this thing comes along. Yeah. And at, a, at what point does he say to you, you guys? You know, I've been talking to you uh, yeah. for how long this is going to be explosive. Well, he, he, he knew he had a feeling it would be explosive. What I didn't know was how big a part of the book that I ended up being. I had no idea. Oh, I knew, so when you got the book, you were as astonished as I, anybody. I knew I was going to be a main character. Did you get a, a manuscript? Obviously, you got a PDF or a manuscript before the book goes no, out. No, nothing. Final copy shows up like yes. this bound. So, yes. Yep. Barnes and Noble, no, yeah. Amazon. Type I, of I asked him, I, and I said, you know, what I said to him, which was, I said, Michael, this is a very technical subject. Um, do you want my help? And he goes, you know what? You can't write a hundred thousand words without making a couple mistakes. Right. Um, and he goes, just do me a favor. After it comes out, make a make a note of of the mistakes. Um, and send them to me. And I found, you know, a dozen things, small stuff. You Minor. Know. But, I mean, by and large, like, the because people have been critical yeah. of the book. Intel, but, in, Intel doesn't trade on the New York Stock Exchange, right? Because they only trade New York listed stocks. Well, who cares, right? That it's it's Yes, it's a technical error, but that doesn't undermine the, right. the, the actual book, the rest right? Of this, this, the, the gravamen of the book is Absolutely. Accurate. So he, na- he nailed the book. Um, he made some technical errors, which people are, you know, people are going to... People are grasping at anything they can get their straws, hands on. Grasping at straws. They're grasping, and uh, and it's funny to watch actually because I've heard people say that what I experienced never happened. Uh, it's an amazing thing to tell a Come trader on. who's lived. Yeah, latency arbitrage doesn't exist. Yeah. I, I just I just I listen to that, and you can't even respond. Who's saying that sort of stuff? A lot of stuff. A book. I think a book's been written about you know why why this doesn't ever Michael Lewis fiction. And, and the amazing <laughs> part is is that again it's you know I can speak about this stuff. I'm so 
grounded in my experience. I've lived through this. Um, you know, I, I can testify in front of the Senate. I can get in fights on television. And, and you, but yeah. let me interrupt you. So you also, more than just you as a trader, you went to some of the biggest mutual funds, some of the biggest hedge funds, some of the most storied traders on Wall Street. Yeah. And they pretty much all said, yeah, I'm going through the exact same problem. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this wasn't like you're in Area 51 and you, <laughs> saw, yeah. you saw the UFO that nobody saw. Yeah. This was widespread. Hey, yes. what's going on with the market? Something is wrong. Yes. Well, you know, the amazing part is the people that I have a common connection and understanding with are traders. They've lived it. Um, sometimes when you get on fights on television, you're fighting with lawyers. You're fighting with people who have never traded a day in their life. If you look at heads of exchanges and markets or firms, if you've never traded... You're only going based on what other people have told you is happening. Um, this is a very common bond I share with traders. Whenever I walk in, people are like, I've lived through it. I've, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, that experience allows you, me, and our firm and the, pe the people that have gone through it to speak with such conviction because we know, we know that it's happened. Conviction and authority. You actually right. became the... Yeah. You know, one of the guys in my office sent me a, a text this morning. There was a link to an article that said, if you read three books on a subject, you will know more than 95% of the population. How many people know more about the structure of order, routing, and execution than, than you guys do? I, I That's got to be a handful of it's, people. It's, it's probably a small number. The even smaller number is how many people will actually tell you about it, <laughs> right? The, the game, the value of that knowledge um, is not monetized by trying to help other people understand. It's monetized by, by gaming the system. Um, so I think that we were, you know, one of the first things I realized after we discovered Thor, we ran these experiments at RBC, we realized mm -hmm. that, hey, this, by delaying when we send the orders, we get to all places at the same time. It was kind of like this eureka moment. Um, I got home, I was in bed, I'll never forget it, I said, oh my God, we're not the first people to figure this out. We're not like 5th or 10th or 5th, like I don't know what, but everyone who's figured this out are the ones that are that are getting ahead of me. Right. They're the, all part of the problem. The, the ones who had, had identified this as a potential issue, instead of trying to fix it, said, we can make money off it. Absolutely. Which, which brings me to the next question. At one point in time, there were estimates of HFT, I'm going to use the word extracting, 10, 15, 20 billion a year in profits. But lately, we've been hearing that volumes are down, volatility, other than this past week, volatility mm -hmm. ha has, has been moderated, and that in general, people and markets are adapting, and HFT isn't as lucrative as it once was. A any truth to that? Well, I think, I mean, in volatile markets, Big investors are trading more, um, which means there's more orders to get, you know, in the middle of. So I'd say volatility leads to a lot of a lot of volume and a lot of profits. Um, I'd also say the margins are going down because it's becoming more expensive to trade. You know, you have New York Stock Exchange selling laser beams on their roof and selling microwave. So no services. longer the book begins with the cutting the fiber optic channel in a dead straight line <laughs> yeah. from Chicago to New York. That now is going away. We're going to do. Point-to-point -point microwaves faster than than less reliable than than in the ground, but still, but it, there's a cost, right? And I think that um, when you look at what's spent, 
It's billions. Billions are being it spent. Bi- it was a billion dollars to lay yeah. that fiber from New York to Chicago. Yeah, so part of it is about the money that's being made. Part of it's about the money that's being spent because ultimately, when you think about who's ultimately paying for the line between New Jersey and Chicago or who's paying for the microwave tower, um, it's coming out of somebody's pocket. It's going to be the investors. Right. Because it, no one would buy the microwave tower if they weren't able to make money from the existence of the microwave tower. Um, what you want to do is you want to make the microwave tower redundant. You can't make it illegal. And that, that's one of the issues is you can't regulate evolution of technology, right. but you can render it useless. Uh, what we're trying to do at IEX is create a level playing field where people don't feel the need to invest in microwave towers because it doesn't necessarily matter how much faster I am because we're trying to create the fairest possible place you know, experience. But any new tower that goes up, someone's paying for that. And they're paying for it out of profits, or else they wouldn't pay for it. It's coming out of grandma's uh, <laughs> IRA. That's who's paying for it. If you follow, if you follow the money far enough, it's yeah, it's coming out of everyday people's pockets. It's a zero. Am I wrong in saying it's a zero sum gain if no. HFTs are extracting fifteen billion by front running half a cent on a hundred thousand shares over and over and over again? That has to be coming in out the stock of market. You cannot. Everyone can't win. Com- contrary to some people's beliefs, it's just not. No, right? It's it's a zero sum game. It is, um, and and again, should the distribution of winners and losers be a little bit more balanced and more fair? Absolutely, um, but that's again that's that's what we're out there trying to solve. But it's it is zero sum. It's coming out of people's pockets, and and the hard part about it is that everyone's losing a little, and a few people are making a lot. You know, David Einhorn wrote an investor letter. I thought summed it up brilliantly. The problem is diffuse harm and concentrated benefit. That's brilliant. That's a great line. Right? Because people, we're trying to save people money they don't even know they're entitled to, but the people we're kind of going after know exactly what we're doing uh, and are very upset about it. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting problem to be in the middle of. What, what other areas in, in the market structure have you, I don't know if the right word is, worried, concerned? Um, what do you see as, as a, a related potential problem? I mean, I think you know we haven't we've seen some changes, um, but so it's getting better. It's it's getting better more based on what people aren't doing versus what people have proactively done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still don't see a huge amount of accountability. Um, you know, so you're, you're making your money and fading into the background and riding off into the sunset. Um, you know, isn't isn't going to prevent prevent the next cycle. You know, the, what concerns me the most is the cycle that we talked about: scandal, regulation. Loophole, exploitation, scandal, regulation, it's gone on for so long. Mm -hmm. Um, And what it does is it prevents, you know, talent. Scandals just drive people away, right? Certain people that would have come to Wall Street that you want to work here just don't want to work here, right? They're going to Silicon Valley. They're going to work, you know, so we're By the way, that used to be the complaint in the middle of the financial boom. Oh, we're attracting people who would be better served going to Silicon Valley and inventing the next iPhone yeah. instead of inventing the next algo that uh, yeah. is going to come come after our orders. So it comes in cycles, but you know, I think that cycle overall leads to a heavily, heavily regulated industry with fewer players, um, and the entrenched players are just far more powerful, right? There, there aren't, there isn't a huge amount of disruption happening. So I think, you know, the 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 cultural cycle is a, is a pretty tough one to break. Um, you know, we're hoping to break that in 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 a, in in a minor or major way. We're just trying to do something different. The good part is, is that you know we do have partners that think IEX is good long term for the market. Um, so that gives us a lot of confidence. Well, I find myself in that same boat. I hope you guys become an exchange. Um, that would I think would be a net positive for markets. 
Um, any other thoughts you want to leave us with? Uh, what's the next book you're going to find yourself starring in? <laughs> I hope I hope none others. Um, you know, it's it's just been uh, you know I just feel very lucky, um, and you know I do feel like I get way too much credit because uh, a team you know our team's done a lot. Uh, Ronan and John and Rob, we talked about them. There's a lot of other people that have that have been behind this. Uh, I probably you know again I experienced a lot of the issues, um, but coming up with the solutions was was a lot of other people. I, I felt like. You know, the book's kind of thrown me out into the front. Um, You know, it's definitely a role I'm willing to play, but, you know, there's a lot of people that have made this happen, so... Uh, you know, it's, I just feel lucky to be in this position. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We've been speaking with Brad Katsuyama. He is the co-founder and co-team leader of uh, IEX. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, be sure and look an inch higher or lower on iTunes, and you can see the other 40 or so of these conversations we've had. Um, I want to thank... Uh, Charles Vollmer, who is my producer-slash-engineer, and Michael Batnick, who's head of research with the firm. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.